Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and this is Claim Your Confidence, and I could not be more thrilled to have my guest today. Genevieve Roth is the founder and CEO of Invisible Hand, a social and culture change agency. But first, a word from our sponsors. In addition to that, she's an expert on the intersection of media, women's empowerment, and social justice, and has worked to convene thought leaders on this topic in partnership with literally everyone in the world, which I'm going to dive into as we move into this podcast. But first of all, I want to say, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm excited. It's going to be really fun. It is going to be fun. So one of the greatest parts about your bio when I was reading through it is the last line, and I'd like to start there. She is a born and raised Alaskan, which she feels is important for you to know. So I want to ask, because I've never been to Alaska, I have such visions of what growing up in Alaska might be, and ice fishing is definitely in that photo montage in my mind. Is that what it's like to grow up in Alaska? Educate me as to what it is like to be a young girl growing up in Alaska and how that ultimately started to shape the beginning of your life. Well, thank you for starting with probably what is my absolute favorite thing to talk about, which is Alaska. Ice fishing is not wrong. Oh, actually, in fact, I was catching up with my brother the other day, and he's the father of two young boys, and he's married to a fisheries biologist, which is pretty hot. And they had been ice fishing over the weekend. Okay, so I was spot on with Alaskan dream. On. The reason I always point it out is that I actually think that the best parts of me are from Alaska. I was from this incredible family, a really patriarchal family, which I'm sure we'll talk about at length. There were eight members of my father's family, eight kids. And they liked and loved each other. And so they decided to do life pretty much together. And my memory was like being raised in the best possible way, sort of being raised by wolves, being raised by these <laughs> men who were businessmen during the week. And I remember the smell of my father's shoe polish as he was polishing his shoes. And I loved watching him leave the door in a three-piece suit. But Friday at five, you better believe, like the skis were on top of the car, the cooler was packed, and we were like going out skiing on the weekend, or we were going to go fishing, or we were going to go on what I thought was a hiking trip and later understood was the trip that we were taking to, like, go catch the caribou that we would be eating all winter. Are you kidding me? You have that element of wilderness in your life. Totally. A hundred percent. My dad was a big fisherman and a big hunter. And, you know, I always remember, funnily, like later in my early 20s, I brought a boyfriend back to Alaska and my uncle took us to a shooting range because there was a period, this is funny, there was a period in New York City where there was a bar game called Big Buck Hunter. Yes, I remember this. And everyone this. loved to play Big Buck Hunter, including myself. Yep. And I, for some reason, thought that I should be like better at that game than other people because <laughs> of, your of Alaskan my heritage, Alaskan heritage. Of and I don't own a gun. We need comprehensive gun reform in this country. And what is happening with gun violence is unconscionable. This was something that was for play, for fun. Yeah. But I wanted to take this gentleman I brought home shooting so that we could like play Big Buck Hunter in real life, asked an uncle to take us, and he did. So we'd go to the shooting range, and all of my remaining uncles are like gentlemen 
outdoorsmen. So they all have guns that they use to hunt for the food that they use to sustain their families. They really live like 80% subsistence lifestyles. And we did it. We, You know, you have a target. You shoot the target. The target comes back. And my uncle looking at it, and it was not a perfect shot at ever, but he was like, that's okay. You got the moose. You have food for the winter. And so interesting. And he didn't have a relationship with guns that lived outside of like, this is what we do to feed our family. Yeah. This is what we do to be a family. Like we come together around these acts of harvesting in a way. And that taught me about community. It actually put me really close to the earth. I've had what the philosophers say is like the relationship with the means of production. Like I know how we make the food we eat. Yeah. And it's important in the way that you as a family came together probably in eating that. Do you cook as a result of that? Or was this just, they were out there making the dinner and shooting the moose and then bringing it back? Or? I do love to cook, but what I also really love to do is to be in community and to gather. Mm-hmm. And I understand teamwork. Yeah. And all of these things that now I use every single day, the grit I got, the like great peace I get from looking out at a vista, my ability to collaborate with other people, my ability to make a good time out of nothing, for me, was my upbringing. I love the make a good time out of nothing. Hot, sweltering Louisiana. We did a lot of that too. (laughs) Sitting out staring at the lake, just hoping an alligator wasn't going to drift by. But, you know, my parents would lock the door and say, come back tonight whenever you're done. And we would just roam like a pack of children, which was so freeing. And as you said, you know, sticks become part of the day. You know, you're building something, you're creating something as part of a team. And I love that you were able to draw that even into where you are now, into teamwork. I read too that you not only had that side, but you loved books. Books were your sort of escape in life in many ways. It's interesting because there was this like tacit agreement between my parents, I think, that my mother had not grown up in Alaska. She'd grown up in Washington State and she'd fall in love with my father when she'd taken a teaching job. That's a whole other story, but she fell in love with this man and she sort of decided to call it a lifetime in this new place. And I think although I should ask her about this, that one of the agreements of their early marriage was that if they were going to raise us this far away from anything, that they were going to figure out how to bring the world to us in other ways. And she was a real reader and a storyteller. And so we had a deep relationship with our local library. I used to kill the summer reading competition (laughs) every single year. Some of the places that you go to like get a caribou or pull the halibut out of the water or what have you are like a seven or eight hour drive away. Mm-hmm. Or you're sitting on the boat for hours and hours waiting for the tip of the fishing pole to start to wiggle. And during all those moments I read and I might have been in Halibut Cove in Alaska, but I was also in India, in the Wild West, in the prairie with Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like yeah. it really was the thing that gave my world depth and texture. Yeah and taught me about something that was outside of this place. Did you find yourself seeking that and wanting to leave and discover, or were you content where you were when the books closed? Because I think one thing that's really interesting about being, I'm a reader too, is sometimes when I close the book, I'm, first of all, I'm sad that the story's over, but I also want to be in that place immediately. <laughs> I want to travel to that place and actually see it with my own eyes. So do you think that that sparked your curiosity? Because you obviously live in New York now. You're not still in Alaska. Do you think even at that early age, you were looking for something else? So it's the right question. And the answer is, like all answers, complicated mm-hmm. because I really loved where I was. Mm-hmm. And no one is as surprised as me 
that I woke up in Brooklyn this morning. Yeah. Like that is the good thing. I couldn't have predicted Why it. Why am I here? And I was not one of those kids who was like, when I get to New York, everything will be better. Yeah. I think it gave me the appetite to see more things, but I was not itchy where I was. I loved being an Alaskan. And I still think there's way more than one way to put a good life together. And I think if my doors has slid in another direction, I'm pretty sure I would still like that life too. So I had an interview yesterday and someone asked me this question, which I thought was really interesting. If you could press rewind in your life, is there a point at which you would change something? And when I was reading your story, I understand that you sustained an injury in high school, kind of changed the trajectory of your life. Can you tell me a little bit about that and then the decisions that came as a result of that? And I'm going to answer that question for you, which is that I wouldn't change anything. You know, spoiler alert. Yeah. So I left Alaska at the beginning of my high school experience to go away to a boarding program mm -hmm. because I was a big ski racer. Interesting. And I went to a school called Roland Hall and the Romark Academy in Utah. Okay. And then I would train in Park City. And I should, first of all, be clear that this is a life path for people who are generally better athletes than I was. I was like a good enough skier to be taken seriously enough to do something like that, but I was not on the path to the Olympics. And I don't think I was lying to myself about it. I think I knew, but I've always been an enthusiast and I wanted to try. It was like a new brave way of being in the world. Like, yeah. And maybe it's funny, Lydia, it's an insightful question because maybe I did read about that somewhere and yeah. think it was a good idea to like try boarding school. I'm sure I read some series where that was the case. I was really conceiving of myself as someone who had skiing as a central organizing force in my life. And that was going to be who you were as part of your makeup. As part of my makeup. And then I had this big accident that actually was in and of itself a pretty devastating injury, but also revealed that I had had this big cyst in my bone that had been sitting there all along, probably since I'd had a different sports injury playing soccer like four or five years earlier, that had it broken in any other way could have actually been much more serious. Interesting. But... What it meant was that I wasn't in a position to go to school to ski. It was a little bit of a, okay, we've got a different set of options now. What are we going to do next? What did you think about boarding school? I went to boarding school too, and I love to ask this question because there is such a mystery around it. My mother is British, and that was how I learned about sort boarding school. Thing. That was sort yeah. of something that she had done. And she used to tell us tales of you know, shoving snow on teachers and midnight feasts in the dining hall. And I remember going from Louisiana to boarding school in Connecticut. And I definitely remember thinking when I got there that I had bitten off a little bit more than I could chew. <laughs> when my parents left, I was sort of like, oh Lord, what have I done? <laughs> Why am I here? And there were moments and I would not give it up because I loved the experience. I feel like I learned so much independence from it. But there were also moments of intense loneliness where I really deeply missed my family. And you obviously had a very close family as well. What was that experience like for me? What do you think you took from those years? I loved it. It was a little different in that the program that I went to was actually more like an exchange program than a boarding program. So we lived with families. And I lived with a really special family. Oh, I spoke to my, like, sister, Lexi, who's a really important part of the fabric of my life now. I wonder, Lydia, if we didn't go to boarding school for different reasons. And I went because that big family that I have described to you just now that was like really patriarchal and centered around all the men, that family changed dramatically when I was 12. And my father and two of my uncles and two of our really best family friends had been on an airplane returning home from a big fishing trip. 
and the plane disappeared. And all of those men died at once. Genevieve, I am so sorry. I had no idea. Oh, thank you. And so that family that had held me changed profoundly. And every good thing I'm telling you about Alaska, about how the community and the convivial nature was still there, but my experience of it from, let's call it like age 12 to age 14, was really suffocating because I was in grief and I needed to grieve privately, but for all kinds of reasons was feeling like I had to grieve very publicly. It was a community experience with all of the moms that lost their husbands, with all of my cousins who lost their dad, with my brother who lost his father. And I had this really patriarchal family that was joyful and fun. And all of the good from me came from like growing up in this sort of marsupial of all of that deliciousness. It was really patriarchal. Yeah. And the women were present and I loved them. I have an incredibly close relationship with my mother and I always did, but I didn't fully know them. And they were, in my memory of it, supporting roles. They were packing the trunks. They were making the grocery shopping lists. They were making sure that the kids had everything they needed. The invisible labor of that generation is staggering, Staggering. period. It boggles the mind. But I think with these women in particular, and then when we lost the plane... And those widows had to be alone with their idea of a very different future. The women they became were breathtaking. Everything I know now about taking the chance, being brave, actually came from watching the phoenix Mm. of those women who, when faced with the question, what do I want the rest of my life to look like, had really incredible answers that I want to go back to school I want to become a grief counselor. I didn't really like being a teacher. I'm going to go be something else. Mm -hmm. I'm going to... They wrote new versions of their stories that taught all of the kids in our family that that was possible. So how do I become a kid that can go away to boarding school knowing that I'm not a good enough skier to actually make anything out of this? Mm -hmm. First of all, I should also say, you have to be privileged enough to be able to do that. I was born with an incredible amount of it. But also... You have to have proof that there's a lot of good ways to put together a life. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to have an example. Everything that I have asked for, a pay raise, a different performance from my employee, a different job for myself, something better or more different out of a relationship or a marriage or in anything, all of that comes from watching those women answer that question about their big life in a totally different way. And I think what I actually now, with a lot of good therapy and years under my belt, understand that I was going because I needed a chance to be a different person and defined outside of that loss. So I loved it. And it allowed me to do that. And I got to be Genevieve Roth athlete instead of Genevieve Roth, daughter of Scott Roth, survivor of this like tragedy that was literally fact check me on this but I think my family was in the newspaper in Anchorage every single day for a year yeah and I'm sure everyone who looked at you looked at you differently and in many ways not only grieving for you but with pity for you and you to me seem like a person who was made of steel and so I would say that there was probably a part of you too that was like I need to find myself without all of this without this projection and this grief 
coming at me. That's right. I need the world to interact with me like I'm strong yeah. so that I can go out and be strong. Yeah. And I needed a chance for a fresh start. It's really fascinating. The accident and that time happened right around the time that I was applying to colleges. And I didn't say in my college entrance essays that I was Alaskan. Can you imagine? Because you didn't want anyone to know. Can you imagine being in this sphere that you and I have been privileged enough to be born into where you're like applying to these fancy schools mm-hmm. and being able to have that like quotient of saying, I was a born and raised Alaskan and this is the thing that I lived through. I didn't let anybody know any of it. I put Salt Lake City, Utah as my return address. Amazing. Because you were ready for a fresh start. That's what you were looking for in many ways, right? I now realize that it was a lot of really unmetabolized grief. Yeah. But some of that stuff you have to breathe through, I don't think I could have accelerated that process. You know, now, if you can find one thing out about me on the internet, it's that I'm Alaskan. Now it is the thing that, like, it is now a central organizing force of my life. But at that time, I needed a breath out from it. And that made this other experience of going away to school the right next step for me. And so I loved it, but probably not in the, like, Hogwarts is yes. this amazing <laughs> way where people that see other people like might society. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. For me, it was it was about something a little different. It was like a brief break from my own life. So you went to college where? Where was your next step? So then I spent a year. This is I actually tell college applicants now this all the time. I would have been a great candidate for a gap year, but I didn't have that. So I did this really fun thing or they weren't as like societally acceptable as they were that I did a really fun thing. I stayed in Utah for a year and I went to music school. Oh, okay. I wasn't sorted out yet. I was still sort of upside down. You were musical or you were musician? I had played the piano my whole life. And again, this is a theme. I am an enthusiast. I don't mind being a little bit bad at things. Yeah. And I was like good enough at the piano to get admitted into music conservatory, but not good enough, you know, graced the stage of Carnegie Hall, but it gave me a break. So I took a whole year and just played the piano and like lived in an apartment and had a great time. It was really special. And during that time was the moment when I sort of pulled my head up and said, wait a minute, books are a job. Writing is a job. This is something I could do. What is the was it was it was it? And then all of a sudden, the like deeply focused made of steel person emerged. I remember going into what was Google at the time and literally entering in what is the best school for publishing in the country. The first thing that came up was Emerson College and the next fall I was there. And it was like that focused. So then I'd finished my undergrad in Boston at Emerson. It's so interesting because media has changed in such a dramatic way. I mean, you talk about an industry that's been completely disrupted in the past, I mean, I would say two decades. Correct. Where was your start there? Where did you go after Emerson? So I finished Emerson. I actually started a magazine at Emerson. Oh, of course you did. Of course, of course I did. Right? Pianist that being, I, and now we're starting a magazine. This that's is, right. I'm nothing, seeing a common theme here. <laughs> nothing if not. Um, yeah, exactly. I tried to put together an interesting life. I used my spring break of my senior year at Emerson to come to New York bang down the door of every magazine editor who would sit with me. One of the editors that sat with me was David Granger, who was the editor of Esquire, which I studied like it was the Gutenberg Bible. I was so (laughs) obsessive about that particular publication. And I sat with David Granger. Why Esquire? That's so interesting. Well, this is actually going to be that, like, like, what's happening to media? Where is it all going? My answer is that, like, everything, but also the thing that hasn't changed is the beauty 
of a really well-told, good story. That is so true. And in my opinion, the best stories that were being written in the country for that period, let's call them the 90s into the early knots, were being told in Esquire magazine. And like, fight me on it. I'm right about this. They were just, (laughs) it was like where all the good writers were. It was where the editor-in-chief was like brave and funded. And I was following at the time what I thought was like the best product, the story. Yeah. And I loved it. So I had finagled my way into a couple of these meetings. I'd met David. I'd met his sort of superstar editor, this guy called Andy Ward. And then I went right from Emerson to Columbia to go to their publishing program. Mm -hmm. So like six days after I graduated, I went into this graduate program at Columbia. I just had found my hustle. Mm -hmm. And so five days before I graduated from the Columbia program, I had an offer from Esquire. Unbelievable, And that was my first job. I'd had an internship at the Atlantic Monthly. and I, I had I'd like done some other things, but the first W-2 I ever signed was, from Esquire. was for Esquire. It's incredible. What a story. I love that path. One thing that we talked about before this podcast was the word confidence. And as you tell me this story, it's clear that there is confidence within you. It obviously comes from a place of truth and beauty and you are an incredibly confident person who stands in front of me. But something that you said that I've thought about a lot since our conversation is that confidence is a bit of a riddle for women. Because on one side, you want to be confident, but on the other side, it isn't always perceived as a good thing to be confident. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes. When I say the word confident, what I am saying to myself is actually a little bit more about Mm self-love, right? Because I think to me, it's like, can I like and love myself enough? to live in a brave way. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like, right? And for me, in my youth, that meant not needing to be the best at something Mm -hmm. and being comfortable with like, oh, you know what, I'm gonna run that race and I'm gonna come in fourth, but boy, it was really fun to run or- I tried it. I tried it, or I'm gonna be a piano major well, I'm like only sort of good at the piano. <laughs> um, Maybe I'll make some stuff up on this. <laughs> exactly. And that's really about, do I like myself enough? Do I love myself enough to be bad at something? And I think that the way that confidence is viewed in society is more about polish and poise and saying something with your full throat to put all 10 toes down and really say what you think and what you mean And for better or for worse, I'm going to go ahead and say worse. The world isn't always super ready to receive that from a woman. And particularly if that is a woman of color, you have tropes like angry black woman. I think if you were to replace angry with confident, you'd probably be right way more often than you weren't. And so I do think that confidence is a riddle. I think it's critical we need it. The good work is on the other side of the bad work. And I think that that self-love is the water that keeps that flower growing. I think you have to love yourself enough to be in that mediocrity. And I think that's what makes it even more complicated in the world that we're living in now. Sometimes when I tell my husband stories like the ones that I've told you about how I was just comfortable being only okay at things. And that for me, in my body and with my upbringing, that was a really good tool for grit and resilience and helped me build confidence. What he, as a Black man in the world, tends to say at the end of those conversations is, must be nice to be white. 
I didn't have that experience. The way that I got on our soccer team senior year, he will say, is by being two times better than the second best soccer player on that team. And so I want to say that this has been the recipe that has worked for me in the world that I've been in. I think it's the right one. So much of the work that we have to do as a society is by dismantling the systems that make this not work for other people. I think we all deserve the right to explore and play around in the things that we're interested in, knowing that there isn't a disproportionate consequence or we're going to be limited in our ability to exceed based on the fact that we're figuring something out. Yeah, it is a very tricky word and I think we seek it and then at the same time we look at it in other people sometimes with jealousy too. So you're at Esquire magazine, but I know you and I've always really known of your career because of Glamour. Yes. Magazine. So how did you go from Esquire to Glamour, which are kind of two different sides of the spectrum in a way, but also great writing, great content, great editorial. So where did that happen in your life? I know that there was a presidential campaign you were involved in. So take us further into the timeline post Yeah, happily. So I spent seven years in men's magazines. And that also had a lot to do with my perception of myself. I thought I was like, I am a brown liquor drinking, swearing, pencil skirt loving girl from Alaska. <laughs> this is like my persona. It's also where I thought the good stories were being told. And I met another incredible woman you'll hear Every story I will tell you from here on out will start. And then I met this incredible woman, because yeah. that's how it always happens, yes. called Jill Herzig, who had a similar trajectory. She'd been at Men's Magazines. She was then, I think, number two at Glamour. And she said, come and try this. I know what you think you like about the men's magazine space. I actually think you're going to like it more in the women's magazine space. I believe this enough that if you don't like it, we'll put our sleeves up together and figure out what your next gig is going to be. And what she was right about was that I had been wildly underestimating the power of a really large group of women sort of swimming in the same direction. And I had thought that in order for my work to have impact, it needed to be in this like super sophisticated package. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when I got into a bigger pool, because the readerships are like 10X the size, yeah. and I treated that glamour reader as though she were a person with real potential, real intellect, real heart, and real care for the world, she put her boots on and got it done. And so I actually think that whole, like, how does this whole trajectory of Genevieve start where she starts as an editor and becomes this, like, social impact person? That woman, that me, I met at Glamour. When what I year was this? 2006, I yeah. think. Because I always think it's interesting time. what's sort of going on with the world. I didn't know how far into it. So, this is early days, if you really think about the women's movement that we know that's oh, coming yeah. back. You're a decade before at this point. Oh, totally. I actually got laid off from Glamour and then was hired by them again. And the culprit that first go around was not the internet, it was actually a different kind of storytelling in magazines. It was like tabloids and Us Weekly and what have you winning a battle against our more long-form journalism. It was early days. Yeah. <laughs> it was early, really early days. days. <laughs> so you left Glamour. So then is that when you started something else? What did you do no. next? How did this all work? So I was laid off from Glamour, landed a job right away in Australia, of all places. I got offered a job doing similar thing, but working for Marie Claire, but working in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And at that phase in my life, there were a handful of things that I felt like I needed to do to be a whole person mm -hmm. that I hadn't gotten around to yet. 
So I had never lived alone. I'd always had roommates. Welcome to New York City rents. (laughs) Totally. I had never lived abroad. And again, I had seen Under the Tuscan Sun by then and like read all those books. So I was like, I need this romantic rendition of my life. Like if I don't ride a pedal push bicycle with a basket in front of it in some other country, then like, (laughs) have I done this right? Have I lived? Have Have I I lived? lived? And so I took that leap, left New York and then took a job and then spent, I think, two and a half or three years living and working in Australia. Was that amazing? It was amazing. I've never been. It's a country that I'm dying to go it to. It was amazing. Mostly because, just to get back to what you said, you know, women can be jealous of one another's confidence when they see it or look at it and say they really want that. What I always yearned for was what I perceived as the ease. Like, why does that look so easy mm. for them when I feel like it's so hard? And what you realize is when you go below the surface and you really get to know the person who you perceive as having the confidence Everything. you yearn for, yeah. it's very rarely ease yeah. that you find underneath. But what you often find is experience, a couple of hard knocks, and then enough acts of like radical self-love And being on your own side that you teach yourself that you've really got your own back. Yes. And so going to Australia and saying, okay, Genevieve, you wanted to be a person that lived on her own. You wanted to be a person that had lived abroad. You go and do that really created a relationship of trust between myself and myself. Yeah. And then the most important relationship of all is That's right. the one that you have with it's yourself. Like you made a decision about what you wanted your life to look like. You wanted to travel. You'd never been to India. You'd never been to Asia. You'd never done all of those things. You went out and did those things. Thank you for having your own back. Yeah, yeah. And you came back from that a much more formed person, I suspect, than the percent. one. Yeah. That's right. And when I had left Glamour, sadly, in that like 2008, whatever period that was, they had said at the time this is not you, this is the economy. Mm -hmm. And if we can ever offer you a job again, we will. And of course you don't believe them when they say that because of course it's me. Of course, if I were better, faster, stronger, what have you, then I would have been one of the ones that got saved and not one of the jobs that was removed. But I had the incredible good fortune to actually experience the confidence that comes from somebody keeping that promise. Yeah. So did you go back because they offered you that from Australia or were you headed back anyway? No, I came back because they offered me that from Australia. I love that. So I had been like, weird story getting ever weirder. I was like in India and... It's a great beginning of any story, (laughs) by the way. I was in India. I was in India (laughs) and an incredible woman called me. (laughs) These two things that happened. Again, I'm going to be blurry on the details because it was a long time ago now, but there was like some kind of a temporary gig that had opened up and then there was the idea that we thought they were going to be. They felt really confident that the Women of the Year awards gig was going to be open. And if I had put a wish under my pillow for every year that I had been a Glamour previously, it would have been like, one day I might be able to work on the Women of the Year awards. Like that was the Sermon on the Mount for me. Like that was the big moment. That's the wrong phrase, but like the job was available and they called me for it. And that to me, just in your career trajectory, there were so many amazing points, but that for me is where you took off. Because every single person I know in New York who has ever worked at Glamour, whoever has touched that event will say your name, just Uh-oh. so you know, with so much reverence and just the architect, that's a word someone used this morning at breakfast when I mentioned that I was having you on the podcast. There are just so many things that have been said about how you created that, formed it, and ultimately brought it to where it is still today, such a hugely respected 
event in our industry, you know, highlighting women around the world, not just, as you said earlier, women who look like us, but women of every race, religion, everything, gender, whatever it is, and continuing to push that envelope as well, which is such a testament to what you've done and what you've built in that. Tell me a little bit about what that felt like to watch that really grow and continue to grow even now in, in this day and age. Well, that's a really nice thing to hear. And immediately I want to like say, Cindy Levy was the architect. I know. The I, women I, of the Year Every Award. woman. You are Ellen the same. Kampinski, I know. Ellen Kempinski was the uh, Allison Ward Frank, who is still doing it and booking it every year. Take a compliment. Like, I know. <laughs> every but, woman out there, just take the compliment. I, and I agree that all of those women did it. I'm just telling um, you, that's what I heard when I've said your name. So I hope that you will take that compliment. Well, let me tell you what about it was so fun. And like my prayer for every woman who ever listens to this podcast is that like unadulterated joy of getting a chance to be good at the thing that you have this like sneaking suspicion you might always be really good at mm -hmm. and then having that thing be true. Yeah. So I got the shot. Yeah. I got the shot to ask myself the question, who belongs on that stage? I got myself to ask the question, how can we make a difference? How can we bring real impact into the space? And I was good at that job. I really was. And I'm proud of that. And it was really fun because when you get the chance to do the thing you think you might be good at and you're right, what could be better? <laughs> exactly. What could be better? It's probably how you feel when you're... On stage. On stage. Absolutely. And you're just embodied. Yeah. It's like your passion matches up with your potential. That's right. right. And the need for that moment. Like, you know, it's like right woman, right time. Exactly. And you use that really as the launching pad for as we look into the the sort of next decade after that of your career, you went from there to the Hillary Clinton presidential yes. campaign. And again, you talk about strong women, you're surrounded by strong women, you're promoting an incredibly strong and powerful woman to potentially be the first president of the United States. Obviously that didn't end up how we thought it would. Certainly the end of that story was different than many of us thought it would be. But again, the experience, as you've said so many times, is part of the journey. Oh yeah. I got the job. Sorry, Cindy, if you're listening. I was sitting, I was at a Woman of the Year dinner sitting next to Huma. You know, she asked me the question, you know, you've been a glamour for a minute now. What's the next act look like? And I said out loud to her something I had said quietly to myself a lot of times was I was, she was, I was like, well, is your boss running again? Because if she is, I quit. And she said, really? And I said, yes, I love this job. But yes, like, tell me to come help you put a woman in the White House and like, let's go. Yeah. So that's what happened. <laughs> You're like, and that was the end of that story. <laughs> and that was the end of that story. Um, and then I, yeah, I had the incredible privilege of getting to be a part of one of the great fights of our life was like, what would it look like for this incredibly competent, experienced, correct person to take a job that would make the world, I think, meaningfully better. And then I got to experience the loss. Yeah that we all experienced and live through the consequences that we all are living through in present tense. And the showing up and continuing to show up even after something like that happened, which I think is the other side of confidence where you learn that actually what makes you confident is when you get hit the hardest because you live through it and you realize you can keep going. And then you look back and think, what's next? That's Come right. On, give it to me. I can take it. That's right. And that's a huge part of being confident in life. And so many people don't push themselves into things that can be scary and they don't put themselves in those situations because they are scared that they won't measure up or yes. they won't live up. And what I love about you is from the ski story to the piano story, even to Hillary Clinton's campaign, like things don't always work out and you don't always get to be the person who stands at the top of the Olympic podium. You know, you don't always get to be the person who plays at Carnegie Hall, but 
trying is the important part and ultimately I believe is what makes you more confident. That's right. Yeah. I had the incredible misfortune of having the worst thing that can happen to a person just about happen to me when I was 12 yeah. and surviving. Yeah. And so I have evidence that I have been using my entire life that things will be okay. Not that you'll get over it. If getting over it is the point, we have to have a different, a different conversation. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. But that you'll be able to move on. And when it comes to the presidential, I always think about those last days of the campaign when I can imagine how Huma must have felt to be at the pinnacle of the pinnacle and see all of that hard work about to come into fruition. I think a lot about Michelle Obama's famous quote, which is like, power doesn't corrupt, power reveals. Yeah. And you really see who you are in those moments where you think life's about to change really for the better. And we saw that in some really beautiful ways with some of my colleagues and some less elegant ways and others. But I believe what you're on the other side of that is there's the friendship and the trust that emerges from people who have to grieve and get humbled mm -hmm. and learn together is so solid. Yeah. It's so solid. And what happened for me after the campaign was that I grieved with those people and I organized with a lot of them. Yeah. You know, I was in meeting one for what became the, the women's, women's march, march. Yeah. which was our primal scream, yeah. right? Into what do we do next? And I would eat a bag of glass for the people that I did that work with. Yeah, I bet you would, um, I bet you would. And they make me brave. Yeah. So that when you're trying to think about like, where does that confidence come from? Do really hard things with people enough times that you can learn to truly trust them, invest in their success and understand that their success and their rise doesn't do anything to diminish yours. No. And you will see the multiplier effect of that. And then it's like, you get the confidence, you get the confidence, <laughs> you get the confidence. It gets the most delicious thing that there is. Yeah. But you do that when you commit to doing the really hard things with the really smart people. It's so true. And I will say this until the day I die, there is nothing as amazing when you invest in people like that and you watch them succeed in their own path, you get selfishly this big lift it's from so succeeding yummy. in your own life. And as you do from watching your friends and the people in the community you've built over time do that. So my final question to you, because I know we're running long on time, but I'm enjoying this conversation so much, I don't want it to wrap up. You talk about being brave. You went out on your own. Yes, I did. And that takes a lot of bravery. And I know there are a lot of entrepreneurs who will listen to this episode. I want to understand how you took that leap because, you know, Glamour is a name. The Clinton campaign is a name. Esquire is a name. Genevieve Roth is now a name. And Invisible Hand, your company, is incredibly well known. How did you make that leap? Why did you make that leap? And what does it look like now? I wish I had a sexier answer for you. The truth is I backstopped to myself. Because there is a Muslim proverb, and I'm probably going to say this a little bit wrong, where it's something about like trusting in God, but also tying up your camel. And the wisdom is first, tie up your camel, make sure you have what you need to be safe in the world, and then trust in God. And for me, I figured out what are the conditions I need to be brave? Like what sort of circumstance in our environment would allow me to trust in Allah, myself, the future of this company? And then I put those in place. I think... It's a little bit of a misnomer that bravery like lives out on its own. 
the smartest and most successful women I know have the right, you know, in their cauldron is the right amount of bravery a dash of practicality, <laughs> like some good friends, like probably Stir a nice rosé, whatever it is. <laughs> exactly, you know, I yeah. think it's not just, it's never just one of any of those things. And I've always tried to figure out what are the conditions I need to feel enough safety to make the big brave move. I always tie up my camel and then I take the leap. But what I did, I had a phone conversation with somebody who was like trying to help you out. People will do incredible things for you when you lose a campaign. Your phone rings off the hook with the kindest, most incredible people saying things like, Genevieve, do you need money? Which I did. I had taken a several hundred thousand dollar pay cut to leave Glamour and go into the campaign. And a lot of those people was like, why not start your own thing? Why not start your own thing? And I was like, I don't have a company. I don't want to do that. That's not fun for me. And then Tina Chen, who was Michelle Obama's chief of staff, said, I want you to meet this guy called Manish. He wants to start a company that does the thing that you think you don't want to do as a company. And I met him, and of course, because the universe is as kind as she is, I had actually just had dinner with him the week before, but hadn't put it together. <laughs> so we got on like a house on fire, and he said, I think you have a company enough that like I will incubate you for a year. Amazing. This and is, I, I know Manish you know as Manish well. Goyle, He's an incredible, yeah, wherever, just a huge shout out to Manish. Um, and so he de-risked me, Amazing. to be honest. Yeah. And that created a situation where I could be in contemplation of what a good company would look like without having to be in the parallel conversation about what would rent payments look like yeah. by giving me an office and back office things. And I had a small suite of clients that I'd had because I'd been consulting on my own. But that first year really helped. It was also one of the most complicated, batshit crazy years of my life. I started Invisible Hand. I got pregnant. I think I had my daughter that year. We renovated our apartment. I did a fellowship at the Kennedy School. It, oh like God. I do not recommend doing it the way that I did it. But I had a situation where I asked myself, what's the wisdom in this? I asked myself, what are the conditions you need to be brave? Mm -hmm. And then I made those conditions with the help of a lot of other people to do it. Tell me about Invisible Hand. I would love to. It's a beloved topic of mine. So Invisible Hand is a social impact and culture change agency. And what that means is that we help companies and individuals, philanthropic institutions, figure out how they're going to be a force for good in the world. And the culture change part of it is that we have a particular belief, probably because of that little girl who was raised in Alaska, like you were raised in Louisiana, that learned about a big world from what she read in the culture that she consumed, that I think that storytelling and narrative change are really powerful tools for positive change in the world. And what that looks like in practice is we have, you know, big corporate clients in a couple of days. We're going to see our work for Spotify light up Times Square in celebration of International Women's Day. Actually, this is a really cool campaign about how music has powered women's movements, but we'll go in and help them figure out what that campaign should be, both from how are they impacting the individual employee that works at Spotify, to the sound engineer, to the creator, to the person who's walking down Times Square next week, hopefully, and is inspired. We have a large body of work that looks like that. We work with individuals, both highly visible individuals, and then those who are resourced in some other way financially, trying to figure out They've got some good to do in the world, but they don't exactly know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's where we step in to help them figure out how to achieve all their potential to make the world better. To make the world a better place. That's right. Well, if there's anyone who's going to do it, I have no doubt it's you, Genevieve. And I look forward to watching as Invisible Hand continues to grow. Thank you very much. Genevieve, tell us where we can find you. Where can we follow along? If we're people who want to pick your brain or get a cup of coffee in an informational interview, where do we look? It's a great question. 2023 is the year that Invisible Hand 
takes the in off a little bit. It becomes a little bit more, <laughs> more visible. visible. <laughs> so you're going to see we're starting a newsletter. We have social media now. I'm going to work on my LinkedIn presence. I've started to realize like these trees shouldn't fall in the woods. No. We should share our lessons. And the only reason that Invisible Hand is as successful as it is right now is because we've made a whole bunch of mistakes pushing that boulder up a hill. And I want to share in those wisdoms. And I do believe in the multiplier effect of that. So hopefully you'll be able to see more of us soon. Well, I look forward to it. I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in again this week for Claim Your Confidence. You can follow along at Lydia Finette on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where I'll be posting updates about all of our upcoming guests. I also podcast live out of the lobby of One Rockefeller Plaza in a glass front podcast booth. You can see tours walking by as we're talking. So please stop by my podcast booth, say hi, take a picture and share on social. A special thanks to Newsstand Studios, Rockefeller Center, and always to Joe, who keeps everything running behind the scenes and is kind of an ongoing laugh track, which I always appreciate. I want to leave you with one thing to think about, and you can feel free to DM me or Genevieve with your thoughts on this. If you are to live your life and you want to be brave, what does that look like for you? Who are you going to surround yourself with to push you to be brave? So let us know. Keep us in the loop. Thank you again, Genevieve, for being here. And thank you all for tuning in. Have a great week, and I will be here next week.